Let's now turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. We'll look at verses 18 through 25. Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Again, if you're visiting, you can find that in the blue Bible in the pew pocket in front of you on page 807. Let me read for us. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. In recent days, I found a captivating little prayer to mark the beginning of the Christmas season. Now, as a follower of Jesus, this resonated with my own heart. I trust it will with yours. And as I read it, just ask yourself, does your Christmas actually look like this? It's rather ideal. Here it goes. As we decorate and celebrate, we do so to mark the memory of your redemptive movement into our broken world, O God. Our wreaths and ribbons and colored lights, our giving of gifts, our parties with friends, these have never been ends in themselves. They are but small ways in which we repeat that sounding joy first proclaimed by angels in the skies near Bethlehem. In vain of the great tidings of love announced to us and to all people, how can we not be moved to praise and celebration this Christmas season? The prayer continues, but it all sounds so ideal, doesn't it? I mean, do you see the picture? It assumes that the very fact of Christmas is just somehow going to sweep us off our spiritual feet and we will, through this entire month, just adore and worship and love Jesus through every facet of the holiday season. Uh, friends, i got to be honest, I struggle with some of these lines. <laughs> It's not that I don't want them to be true, it's just that they often aren't. I mean, let me just pick a few apart. Think of this one. He's, he prays, 
consciously decorating and celebrating God's movement into the world. Uh, When I'm decorating, I'm trying not to sneeze. I mean... The, the fact that, like, when you're doing that and then you have to go and make that additional trip to Lowe's to buy more lights or whatever, I mean, like, I am having a really hard time thinking about Jesus as the light of the world. You know, it, truth, in, in the whole season, I, I often wonder, am I really celebrating Christ or just nostalgia, tradition, family, friends, fun? What about you? Here's another line. Our wreaths and ribbons and colored lights, our giving of gifts, our parties with friends are nothing but small ways in which we repeat that sounding joy first proclaimed by angels in Bethlehem. (laughs) I wish. Maybe it's just me. But unfortunately, when I hear of decorations and giving gifts or parties with friends, I'm often fighting the temptation to stress over A, my budget, or B, my lack of time. But that could just be me. What about you? One more. The last line. This one takes the cake. How can we not be moved to praise and celebration in this Christmas season? I like that. It is the foregone conclusion. Of course, everybody is just always worshiping Jesus at Christmas. The opposite is sometimes true of me. Look, I don't find myself, I'm a pastor, and I don't find myself uncontrollably constrained to worship Jesus. In fact, I am regularly and persistently battling not to forget him. What about you? Friends, we're not alone. There was a recent Pew survey that was done. They've been doing this for several years now in which they ask people whether they view Christmas as more of a religious holiday or a cultural holiday. For as long as the survey has been done, the majority of Americans at least perceive Christmas to be a religious holiday. But for the first time ever, the the scale has tipped the other direction. And now, if you actually view Christmas as something religious, you are in the minority. It's the inevitable conclusion. So I'm grateful for the prayer because it is indeed a prayer. It's a prayer of the way we want things to be. It's not a picture of the way things really are. That's how prayers work. We all understand that the habits and traditions of the season can rush us right past the spiritual significance of the celebration. And every one of us in the room have room to grow in our depth and breadth of contemplation and appreciation of Christ at Christmas. And so for those who struggle, and maybe it's just me, The text we just read will help. Matthew's account, when properly understood, provokes us to shock, awe, wonder, and most importantly, worship. To appreciate the impact, you need a little bit of background. Matthew's writing this through a group of Jews who lived in a pretty messed up world. 
we think our world was bad, just rewind the clock about 2,000 years, and it was even worse. They wanted it to be made right. And you know what? They actually had some kind of hope that it would be made right. All through their religious literature, all through the Old Testament, they were getting these promises over and over again that this king, this Messiah figure would come and fix everything and it would be a veritable heaven on earth. And yet it was anything but. But there had been some word by the time Matthew's gospel had been written. There had been word that one did come who claimed to be the Messiah. I mean, many had actually seen him preach, perform miracles. They saw him die. And then some even had the privilege of seeing him rise again. They saw him in life. Some saw him ascend into heaven. Obviously, word gets around. And Matthew is writing to a group of these Jewish Christians, these ones who wanted to believe that Jesus was the Christ, but struggled with doubt. Not everybody had the privilege to see the risen Christ. And so he says, I'm going to do the historical research, and I'm going to write down the account so that you guys can be crystal clear on the fact that this Jesus of Nazareth really was the Christ. And they really needed that confirmation, friends. Because Jesus wasn't the first one to come along and to claim to be the Christ. You could look it up on Wikipedia. Christ claimants. Through history that have actually claimed to be the Christ. And some of them had gotten their hopes up and dashed. Up and dashed. Up and dashed. And so it is Matthew's responsibility here to prove once and for all that this Christ really was the one that was promised from the Old Testament. And so how would they know? How many, I mean, how many had failed and claimed this in the past? Well, Matthew does it in in the best of ways. He's going to write and show that Jesus was the promised king and ruler, and he does it with all the best research. He even opens up his gospel with a genealogy. We never read that. I think we should. (laughs) Why a genealogy? What's the big deal about that start? Because this promised one had to come from a certain line. And it seems that this Jesus checks out. He's a descendant of Abraham. He's a descendant of David. Right on down to Joseph. But something weird happens in the genealogy in verse 16. Again, you never read it, so you're you're not really paying attention to it. But what you have, if you're reading it, especially in the original language, you have 39 of the same verbs back to back to back to back. The verb in the ESV is to father or to be the father of, to bear, to beget. So-and-so beget, so-and-so beget, so-and-so beget, so-and-so beget. 39 times. And then on the 40th time it changes. Something different happens. Look at verse 16 of Matthew chapter 1. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, is called Christ. Notice, you would expect it to say, and Joseph, the father of Jesus. Joseph, father of Jesus. But no, it says, and Joseph married to Mary, of whom Jesus was born. It's active verbs, active verbs, active verbs, and then passive Which for anybody looking to verify that this was really the Messiah is thinking, this is weird. (laughs) Why does Matthew switch up the genealogy? What's, 
What's up with this 40th listing here? That's what he's explaining in chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. You want to know why it's changed up? You want to know what this is all about? Whether or not this is really the Messiah? Listen to this story. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ, of all those people that were just listed, here's the one you need to be aware of. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Something unique has happened here. Something contrary to expectation. It may place Jesus in the legal required realm, but culturally things get really off. And Matthew here is going to show and prove how Jesus came as both the expected son of David and the unexpected son of God. The passage today authenticates that this Jesus is indeed God's ruler and rescuer, promised from the beginning. And friends, here's where it helps you. This confidence and conviction will fuel our celebration of Jesus Christ. Now, I need to warn you of something. Because some of you have been listening to me preach for a couple years. Now, you expect something of me, and typically that is points and structure. I will give you points and structure, but you need to know that this is not an epistle. This is a narrative. This is a story. And when you tell your children stories at night, you don't give them points. You tell a story. But I get that some of you are OCD. And you want to write stuff down. So to serve you, I've labeled certain points in the story. But I'm not going to repeat them very much. And you're just going to have to listen again. Okay? <laughs> Let me tell you the story. With labels. And then we'll get to the significance. We've got five movements to this story. The first is the mysterious conception in verse 18. The mysterious conception Look at it in your Bible. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Those first few words of verse 18 are interesting. Literally, I mean, the word for birth there is genesis. The genesis. The origin. The origin of the one who is known as Jesus Christ. It starts off like all first century listeners would expect. But then it all of a sudden will go off the rails. Jesus Christ's mother. A young maiden named Mary. Like most girls between the ages of 13 and 15 of that time, she is planning on marriage. Culturally, that was the expectation. Here the text actually says, though, that she was betrothed. Now, I want to retain the word betrothed because we don't have anything like it in our culture. Some translations will say engaged. Um, My own wife and our relationship is proof that engagement means nothing. She was engaged, and now she's married to me. (laughs) Yes. Stolen away. There's no legal obligation to engagement. But betrothal? Betrothal is the equivalent of being engaged with legal consequences. 
You are formally married, but you are not functionally married. It was a pretty cool little ceremony that the two families would actually get together and probably at childhood arrange the, the, the children's future marrying plans, which as my children get older, I think that's probably not a bad idea, but we'll see. <laughs> They're the ones that arrange it. They sign the deal, and then there's actual a betrothal ceremony in which they get to see, you know, you get to see your future wife, you get to see your future husband. And at that point, there's paperwork signed, and the families just generally split up for anywhere from one month to a year. Now, at this point, the, the husband-to-be goes back to his father's house, and he'll actually start building an additional room onto the house. This is where he and his new bride will live. She, at that point, begins to partake of the rituals of purification, required her via Levitical law, and then also preparing her wedding dress. For those of you familiar with the greater things of Scripture, you can see all kinds of allusions, even in this historical background. But at the time, they didn't see much of each other, but they are considered legally married. Even here in this text, it'll say her husband, Joseph, wife, Mary. So they are formally married. They are not functionally married. They are not physically married. They have not come together to consummate that relationship yet. And so it's a rather happy time, as engagements tend to be. Everyone's excited. I mean, this is like the highlight of any small Jewish village. You've got a young girl, and she's going to marry this nice young man. Something weird happens. The, the text in Luke that we read earlier will tell us that Mary, as soon as this betrothal takes place around that time, she's going to take a three-month trip to go see her cousin Elizabeth. Family trip, not a big deal. Joseph is working hard on the house. She's working hard on the wedding dress. And everything should be great until she begins to make her way back from that journey, having been conceived via the Holy Spirit. Now the text clues us in on what's happened. The Holy Spirit in some way has overshadowed her and produced a child in her womb, a child of divine origin. But no one else has access to this information. And in a first century context, you need to be hyper aware of how this would have been perceived. In fact, I even find the verb tense interesting, or the voice, excuse me, because it says here not that it was discovered that she was of the Holy Spirit, but she was found out, passive, found out like surprise. Not she told everybody, but they of their own passively learned, whoa, little Mary, meek and mild isn't so little anymore. I mean, I can only imagine that the word made its way to Joseph before he was ever even able to see, here's his betrothed. This was a public ceremony in the village, and now he is seeing her come back with a little bundle of joy. It's not a joyful time for him. I mean, I I try to put into words how a man at this particular stage would feel. Sad doesn't cut it. Frustrated doesn't cut it. Angry doesn't cut it. Maybe gutted 
Joseph is gutted. He's a righteous man. She was a righteous woman. Everything seems so perfect. And now he has no recourse. I mean, this was the time before they came together, according to the text. He knows it's not his. And we're left to just take the narrator at his word. And, and for now, I want you to see that Joseph couldn't have believed her. There was no way that he could have believed her. Even if she did somehow arrange a meeting and say, hey, the Holy Spirit did this to me, it's, it's just not going to fly. And Matthew, let's get back to Matthew. Matthew wants us to see how this misunderstanding could be a threat to the requirement that God's promised king would come from the Davidic line. Do you see the tension? Because for him to truly be the Messiah, he has to be included in the legal line of David. And guess where the legal line of David runs? It runs through Joseph. And if Joseph breaks this thing off, this baby is not the Messiah. And so we move from the mysterious conception to the realistic tension. Look at verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, Joseph, her husband, again, there's that legally binding terminology. He has a decision to make. The law demanded divorce. Uh, Deuteronomy 22, verses 23 to 24, spells it out for us. If there is a betrothed virgin, notice that, not a wife, but a betrothed virgin, and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city. And the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. Notice that, betrothed wife. You, so shall you purge the evil from your midst. That's what the law would demand of a righteous individual in that time. But, to be fair, that's not what the Roman law would allow. The Romans, by this point, had taken away that ability from the Jews. They didn't have the right to execute capital punishment on their own unless it was some type of a mob situation. That was why the crucifixion of Jesus, they were trying to do that through Rome. They held the power of the sword. So here, realistically, Joseph doesn't have an option to kill her. Let's not over-dramatize this. But he is forced, as a righteous man, to not overlook this fault but to actually divorce. And with that, though, he does have a couple options. He can either divorce her publicly or privately. A public divorce would be something akin to Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter. Do you remember the opening chapters of that? I mean, where Hester Prynne is taken out of the prison door, put up on a scaffolding, and then with her scarlet A and baby in arm, forced to stand in front of the public for three hours while they mock and ridicule her for her sin. I know that sounds outrageous to us, but it would have fit very well into an honor-shame culture like first century Palestine. That would have been the normal expectation. That is the natural response to infidelity. If someone injures me in this way, I will do whatever it takes to shame them. In fact, even in our own country today, 
There have been 41 different states, plus the District of Columbia, that have had to pass these laws that prevent people from shaming someone else via bad pictures (laughs) when they break up. We've had to put laws on the books because people so want to shame the people who hurt them that now we need legal protection from it. I'm only telling you that to say that it is just the natural response when betrayed to this degree to lay it all out there and say this person should bear the weight of what they did to me in breaking this marriage contract. And yet here... Joseph doesn't choose option A, he chooses option B. He could legally, privately, according to Numbers 5, go with two or three witnesses and, per, and make this an official divorce to, to save her reputation. He's probably thinking, her life's already going to be hard enough. And so he compassionately chooses the latter. But here, friends, please remember this. It doesn't matter. Because either way, option A or option B, guess what? They end a divorce. And guess what happens if it ends in divorce? You no longer have the legal line going through Joseph to the Messiah. So it's a lose-lose situation. And the text says, he's resolved to do this. And so we're wondering, all right, if this Jesus really was the Messiah, if he really was of the legal descent of David, how in the world will this child be it if Joseph divorces her? And so the scenes continue. We move from the realistic tension to the angelic intervention. Look at verses 20 and 21. The angelic intervention. God sends an angel to redirect Joseph. Verse 20 reads, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. So here it is. I can imagine that Joseph is tossing and turning as he's learned of this. He can't sleep He's contemplating Mary's perceived unfaithfulness and his course of action. The text says he considered these things, and behold, it invites you to see there was a dramatic intervention. An angel, after he drifts off to sleep, appears to him in a dream in an attempt to redirect Joseph's plan. So how's he going to do it? Well, he addresses them. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Says Joseph, that even though divorce may seem like the only way forward, you need to know that the child within her is from the Holy Spirit. That's what the text says. This isn't just Mary claiming it anymore. This is a divine representative of God himself saying that this child has been supernaturally conceived by the power of God. How could this be? Well, as a faithful Jew, Joseph had some ideas. I mean, he would have remembered that the Spirit of God in the Old Testament was active in creation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, Psalm 33, 6. He would have remembered that the Spirit of God was responsible for imparting life. Psalm 104, 30 and Ezekiel 37. He would have remembered that the Holy Spirit would have a role in the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2, Isaiah 42 verse 1. Joseph knew that if this could happen, the Holy Spirit would be the one to do it. And so the angel's announcement means something to him. Okay, indeed, the Holy Spirit could be involved in this. But 
at least from his own perspective, he doesn't have to still marry her because if he follows through with the marriage, he's tacitly implying his own guilt. He's going to be saying, well, I needed to marry her because this was my child. And so he has a decision to make. But the angel doesn't leave him much of a decision. Beyond the reassurance, he charges Joseph with a responsibility. And that is, notice this, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Do you notice how he addresses them? He doesn't just say, Joseph, do this. What does he say? Joseph, son of David. He wants Joseph to remember his responsibility, his heritage to the legal line. Joseph, son of David, you have two responsibilities. If I were to put it in just my normal colloquial language, it would be, number one, marry Mary. Number two, name Jesus. Both of these are significant. By marrying Mary, accepting her as your wife, bringing her into your home, officially recognizing her as part of your family, Jesus will be included in the legal line. But that's not all. There's an emphasis in this text on naming Jesus. He says, she's going to have a son, and God has sent his promised king, and you, as the legal father, shall call his name Jesus. In that culture, the one who gave the name was the father. It was his responsibility to name. You remember that in the John the Baptist episode? Everybody's waiting for a name from whom? John. It's his job. The dad names the kid in that culture. And he's saying, Joseph, you name Jesus because when you do that, you are taking ownership for this child as your own. God's rescuer, ruler, is already here in her womb and you will take responsibility legally. Now, while the fact that Joseph will name him or adopt him is important, the angelic announcement also claim, or clears up some huge misconceptions of the day. And here it is. How will God save his people? See, names in those days actually meant something. They, they communicated who you were, or at least who you were supposed to be. In some senses, I would say that first names in the Bible are kind of more like our occupational titles in our own culture. I'll give you an example. My name is Justin, which supposedly means, at least on the refrigerator magnet that was at my parents' house, means justice. Now, I don't know of anyone in this church or anyone in my own family who's ever made any intentional connection between the two. That is not to say I am unjust. It's just nobody goes around thinking, justice, justice. My title, however, that's so different. Because as soon as someone learns that I'm a pastor... Things get really weird. (laughs) My name? Meh. A pastor? Yeah. (laughs) That's because titles in our culture mean something. They communicate something about who we are. In their culture, it was the name that communicated something. Your title tells something about you. Whatever your occupation is, at least here in the West, it communicates something to someone about you. And so also here, this first name wasn't just an empty, hollow name. It was intended to communicate something about this Jesus. And admittedly, admittedly, the name Jesus was not unique in the Old Testament. 
Or in Jesus' day. If you look in the Old Testament, you'll find four different people named the equivalent of Jesus. Jesus, by the way, is the Old Testament name Joshua. So in Hebrew, you would transliterate it Joshua or Yeshua. In Greek, you translate it Jesus. So it's, it's really, we would like to think, oh man, such a special name. It wasn't all that special, but there is a difference between Jesus' name here and the others who had also been named Jesus. See, those other names were supposed to be memorial names. Jehovah saves. Remember that Jehovah saves. Here, Jesus will be a missional name. It will not point back, but it will point forward. And God, by the way, does the best job at naming. He knows exactly what this child was to do. This child would be Yahweh's agent of rescue, deliverance, salvation. He will save his people from their sins. Now, the word save, you got to get this. Modern analogies. The hero saved the damsel in distress. The doctor saved my life. The fireman saved that child. That's exactly what it meant then, save. But I want you to do me a favor. This is an interactive moment. I realize we're not in junior church. This is adult church, but I need you to do me a favor. Take your finger, put it at the end of verse 21, and cover up the last two words. All right. Now you keep your finger there. All right, now I'm going to ask you a question. In what way did God intend for this Jesus to be a Savior? How would most people you know today fill in the blank? He will save his people from... Well, the Jews of that day would have said Roman tyranny. I think the people in our own day would say Jesus will save his people from economic inequality, save his people from loneliness, a lack of purpose, a lack of self-esteem. And listen, friends, I say this compassionately. I realize that... Maybe you or the people around you may think that your greatest need right now is rescue from some physical malady or some financial shortfall or some emotional distress or from some relational train wreck. But God sent his son Jesus to do something more significant than all those things. And what is that? If you haven't taken your finger off already, do it now. He will save his people from their sins. Our threat wasn't a a train, a house fire, a physical disease, economic inequality, or loneliness, or depression, or a lack of purpose, or a lack of self-esteem, or financial challenges. Our problem, our need, the ultimate issue was sin. See, God himself understands sin to be the basic, if not always, the immediate cause of all other calamities. Um, I think it would be fair to say that any good doctor knows that it is his job to get beyond the symptoms to the root of the problem. I mean, we trust that If we take our child to the doctor with chicken pox, that he's not merely applying some type of topical cream. That he at least has enough knowledge to get to the something deeper. I heard a story actually a couple weeks ago of a guy who went to the doctor complaining of jaw pain. 
And so he was thinking that he just needed some muscle relaxers or something like that. Maybe he was too stressed. And so the doctor actually turns and asks him, he says, well, have, have you cut or scraped yourself in any way? And the guy says, well, as a matter of fact, I actually stepped on a rusty tack the other day. We were changing out some carpet in the house or whatever. And he says, that's it, it's tetanus. Even though the issue was really down in his foot, the guy thought it was in his jaw. That's what a doctor does. So often, so many in our world have misdiagnosed the true problem. These issues of your relationships and your finances and your work struggles, these things are just symptoms. The real issue is sin. And that is what Jesus came to save us from. You say, how did he do that? Well, see, sin naturally carries with it consequences. Consequences in life as well as in the life to come. We've been separated from God, and sin also separates us from other people. And it causes all sorts of chaos. And so Jesus would come, having not sinned, and actually paid for the sin that you and I had committed. He'll remedy the penalty of sin by taking that penalty on himself. But that's not all. It isn't just that he has saved us, but he is saving us. He is saving us from sin. In what way is salvation current? Well, guess what? That sin nature still dwells within you in some way and tries to lead you to do wrong. But the good news is, That those who believe in Jesus have access to the same power that resurrected him from the dead. And they don't have to do those things anymore. All those destructive habits and behaviors. Those things that cause so much trouble in your relationships with other people. Those things that drain your bank account. Those things that put you at odds with other people in work. You don't have to do those anymore. Because Jesus and his power through the resurrection has given you the capacity to overcome. So we have been saved through Jesus, not only from the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin. And here's the best of news to me. One day we will be saved from the presence of sin. So what do you mean by that? Well, look, look around. I get that it's Christmas time, but there's still a lot of junk going on that you don't want to see happening in this world. And I realize that we're in a first century context, but just watch the news for 20 minutes and you'll figure out we still live in a pretty broken place. The presence of sin sin is still around us. And one day, this same Jesus will come and he will exercise his rule and authority on this physical earth, thereby banishing all those things that we all hate so much. And therefore, Jesus saves in the past from sin's penalty, in the present from sin's power, and in the future from sin's presence. This is the root of of the problem. This is what Jesus remedies, which gets us back to the story. So this is the rescue from sin, and friends, this is what's on the line. If this Jesus isn't adopted into the legal line, he's not the one. He's not the one that can provide that type of rescue from sin. God's rescue plan required this one to come from the line of David. Without, listen to this one, without inheriting David's sinful nature. Man, it's a tough situation. And so for us to be sure 
that this child was truly the Messiah, Joseph would have to adopt him into the royal line. And thus, he would have to marry Mary. Thus, he would have to name Jesus. So we've got the angelic intervention. It's an attempt to redirect Joseph and to seal the deal on this child being part of the Davidic line. But Matthew is now going to add further weight and gravitas to Joseph's decision as he will also recall for us the prophetic expectation. The prophetic expectation. Look at verses 22 and 23 in your Bible. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Here Matthew jumps in on the story, right? And he is interrupting with an important detail. The question is, why did Jesus come in such a strange way? Why a virginal conception and birth? Why would these miraculous details and the title, God with us, be so important for us to understand? Well, the whole episode affirmed prophetic fulfillment. It, it proves that this was the one that was promised in the Old Testament. It comes from Isaiah seven fourteen. We read it last week as a church. These same words are used. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. In that context, God's promised, God had promised a sign to his people that they would be ultimately saved. And he said that this sign, by the way, should be as deep as hell or as high as heaven. He wanted to give them some proof positive that they would, in the end, be saved. Now, if you go back and do the historical research, you'll find that there was a small way in which this initial prophecy was fulfilled in Isaiah chapter 7. But as you continue reading through the book of Isaiah, especially in chapter 8 and 9 and 10 and 11, you'll notice that Isaiah keeps referring to this child over and over again, and you realize that whatever happened then in the 8th century wasn't fully and finally fulfilled yet. There would be a greater, truer, fuller salvation still on the horizon, and this full and final salvation would functionally have to come from a virgin-born rescuer-ruler. And that is quite a sign. A child being born of a virgin. But that's exactly what took place. And so here, this child would not only come through the womb of a virgin, but he would indeed rightfully wear the title, God with us. You know, that used to confuse me when I was reading this story. Maybe it does you. Because it says that, all right, Joseph, you call his name Jesus, right? But then the Old Testament prophecy says, oh, you call his name Emmanuel. Does anybody else see a conflict there? (laughs) I'm thinking, nobody actually calls him Emmanuel through the Gospels. What's going on? Well, again, different cultures. You actually go back and you look in the Old Testament, like with Solomon, for example. His name was Solomon. But in 2 Samuel 12, 25, you also see that he was given the name or the title Jedidiah, the one loved of God. One was his name, the other was his title. Not an unusual thing. So also here with Jesus, one describes his office, the other describes his nature. His office is rescuer, savior. His nature, God. 
it wouldn't just be human who would enter into this thing to fix it. It would be God himself in human nature. But we're left with a question, though. Joseph's got the angelic pronouncement. The question is, what will he do? And so we move from the angelic intervention and the prophetic expectation to the divine authentication in verses 24 and 25. God authenticates. Notice how he does it. Verse 24, when Joseph woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So is he going to leave her in the proverbial cold? Is he going to just make this baby fend for itself? No. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. The plan of God here is executed to the narrowest detail. Do you remember the two things that had to happen for Jesus to be included in the line? There were two commands. Mary, Mary, name Jesus. Both of those things happen here. It says, he took his wife, Mary, Mary, meaning he publicly completed the marriage by taking Mary into his own house, but he did not physically complete the marriage. Friends, do you understand how much this cost Joseph and his reputation? I mean, he is now, in effect, in that culture, admitting that this child is his. He knows the details, she knows the details, but no one else does. Marriage was a public ceremony. For her to even be taken to his house, it would actually require him to go to her house and then ceremoniously parade her through the streets back to his own house. What should have been the walk of fame became the walk of shame. It was narrow streets, and it was a narrower conscience of the people who would look on him with shame and scorn, and yet the text will reaffirm that even though he will take her into his house, he will not take her as his physical wife until she gave birth. This child was from God, included legally in the line of David as he married Mary. But there was a second thing that he was supposed to do, and that was name Jesus. We so often forget this, and yet the text is the thing that emphasizes this. Joseph wants us to be crystal clear that this child was the legal descendant of Joseph. It says, and he called his name Jesus. This was the legal responsibility of the Father. The Mishnah told us this. Isaiah 40, 31 talks about God naming his son Israel, the nation of Israel. He was taking ownership and responsibility for them. And in this climactic moment, all is rescued because now this descendant of David can come but not physically come from David. Legally, the Messiah. Physically, through Mary, from God. It's a beautiful thing. So the story shows us how it's official. Matthew's walked us from the mysterious conception through the realistic tension, from there to the angelic intervention and prophetic expectation, and he leads us squarely to divine confirmation. Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, is indeed God's chosen rescuer ruler, both Son of God and Son of David. Let's return then to the troubling opening dilemma. That prayer. I can't get that off my mind. Remember that final line? 
How can we not be moved to celebration and praise of Christ this Christmas season? That's what I want to help you with today. To do that, I want to borrow, steal a tactic from a classic Christmas movie. It's a wonderful life. You ever seen it? Maybe. My children haven't, I know. It's pretty good. 93% on Rotten Tomatoes, if you want to see it. I want to recall the storyline with you. It's pretty basic. I think I can do it in a few lines. There's a young George Bailey. He's failed to live up to his childhood dreams, and he falls on some especially hard times at Christmas. Things are so bad that he considers taking his own life by jumping off of a bridge until an angel intervenes. And what the angel does is he gives him these visions. Uh, he shows him what life in Bedford Falls would have been like without him. So he, he's giving him, a, like, reimagining the, the scenario and the way it goes. don't mean to spoil it for you, but after he sees... <laughs> How much of his little life has contributed to his family and community. George cheerfully decides to keep living and serving in the community. He realizes it's a wonderful life. The tactic that I would particularly like to steal that I think is so effective in the storytelling is the re-envisioning. He, the angel invites George to, to reconsider a world without him. It's so American. See how special you are, George. I want to do something similar, but I don't give a rip about George. Let's do some reimagining for a second. What would it look like in our world if Jesus had not come in this way? To move you to the praise and celebration of Christ, I want you to imagine a world for a moment without Jesus. Now, on account of the story that we just read, two things are currently true because Jesus came in this way. One, through this Jesus, God has saved us. Two, through this Jesus, God is with us. Are you ready to imagine the opposite? Without this Jesus... Without this miraculous and divine conception and his legal ad- adoption, guess what wouldn't be true? If we didn't have this confirmation, if we didn't know for sure that this Jesus truly was the Son of God and the Son of Mary, can you tell me what Christmas would look like even this year? Friends, I would only even ask you this. What in the world are we celebrating if this isn't true? I'm not trying to be crude, but if you would imagine the way that most people would try to have you imagine it, if Jesus was just some bastard child of a Galilee in Casanova, what in the world are we celebrating? Friends, I'm counting on this Jesus to get me through death. And I assure you that some love child of some marriage scenario gone way wrong in the first century, that dude's not getting me through death. He's not doing anything for me. 
There is nothing. There is nothing to celebrate. We are in a whole heap of trouble. Without this Jesus, God has not saved us. God may rule over us as divine creator. He may reprimand us as divine judge. But it is only through Jesus' entrance into humanity that we can truly say that God has saved us. Through Jesus, God has saved us from sin's penalty. That, that conscience that strikes you so often, remedied, fixed because of Jesus. Through Jesus, God is saving you from sin's power. That struggle, that habit, those destructive acts that you constantly feel like you're falling prey to, there is deliverance from those because of this Jesus and His entrance. And through this Jesus, God is saving you from sin's presence. Not yet, but one day. All those things you hate, all those things you bemoan, all those injustices, all those wrongs will finally be made right as this one who rightfully claimed the throne will return and exercise his rule and reign over this world forever. Without this Jesus, there is no rescue. God has not saved us. There's another thing to imagine. Without this Jesus, God is not with us. Without this Jesus, God is not with us. He may be over us. He may be around us. He most certainly would be against us on account of our sin, but it is only through Jesus' entrance into humanity that we can truly say that God is with us. You understand the value of that preposition? I mean, even when somebody in like human life like comes alongside and you say, oh, they're with me through this. God is with you through this. Jesus has entered into your condition. He knows what it is to be tempted. He knows what it is to experience human limitations and stress and anxiety. He's with us. Through Jesus, God is with you in your sorrows and struggles. Through Jesus, God is with you in your hopes and dreams. All those things you're hoping to accomplish for the Lord, those victories that you want to win, those things that you want to do for His glory that seem like such a long shot. He's with you. And through this Jesus, God is with you in your pressures and problems. I get that Christmas isn't the cheery time that it is for some of us. It isn't every day, but I often will recall how fortunate I am to be in this life stage. Little kids at home, excited about a Christmas tree. I mean, like, I'm, I'm trying to not forget the special spot that I'm in. But, friends, especially those of you who are older, I want you to know that I, it's not that I can't imagine what it will be one day 50 years from now. For some of you, I totally get that Christmas isn't as happy as it used to be. While my children may look to this day with glee, you may look to it with horror. It's empty. It seems more hollow. 
there's not as much to celebrate. And guess what? Even in that loneliness, even in that struggle, through this Jesus, God is with you. He's with you. Therefore, I say that we are moved to celebrate. Because through this Jesus, God has saved. God is with. What about you? If if you're not sure that Jesus is your rescuer, your ruler, would you rely on him today? And if you don't know what that means, talk to me or someone else after the service. You say, you are sure that Jesus is your rescuer, your ruler? Friends, let's rejoice. This is a great Christmas. So much has been made available to us through the incarnation of the Son. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have saved us. You are with us. Those of us who have believed in you, And yet I recognize that just a couple days before Christmas that not everyone who visits this Sunday has yet to place their faith in you, their trust in you, or work in their hearts, or lead them to believe, even today. Lord, for those of us who have believed but have struggled to celebrate, or may the story reawaken within us, Lord, the reality of the blessings inherent to the Incarnation. I pray that we would truly rejoice, and then from that we'd be able to tell others, not out of obligation, but out of a sense of opportunity. We're pointing others to your Son that we find so much joy in. May that be true of us this Christmas. So may your word have its will and way in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.